I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Let me read for us the passage. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we look specifically this morning at the names that you gave to your Savior, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, you would illumine our minds, you would cause your spirit to shine forth light into our very souls, that we might treasure and love Christ for some of us maybe the first time today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last two Sundays, we looked at two passages, one a prophecy about the birth of Jesus in Micah chapter 5, and that God would one day raise up a ruler who would shepherd and bring security and peace to his people. But we also looked at Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 2. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 that she would also bear a son and she would call his name Jesus and, and he would be specifically the son of the Most High. And he would be given the throne of his father David and he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this morning, instead of Mary, we're looking at Joseph's encounter with the angel. And it's very similar to that of Mary, but the focus is on Joseph and the themes about the child are different than that of Luke's account. Luke's account is this clear indication that he is the son of the Most High and he's been given the throne of his father, of his father David. He is the king. But here in Matthew, the focus is on a different truth about this child to be born. Now, all I want to do this morning specifically is to focus our attention on the two names that are given to this child and the significance of those two names. The one name comes from the mouth of the angel that speaks to Joseph. The other name is, is more of a title which comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament. 
So let me, let, let's look first quickly at verses 18 through 21. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's important. Matthew is trying to tell his readers, he's trying to tell us that he's recording for us what actually happened historically in real time. It took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that is engaged, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We looked at that a few weeks ago, that, that, she was, that the child in her womb was conceived by a miraculous power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. And her husband, in verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In the Old Testament, if one was caught for adultery, you could be stoned to death for such an act of sin. But in the Old Testament, God provided also a way for husbands to privately divorce their wives for adultery without bringing shame upon them. And that's what Joseph seeks to do here. He tries to resolve to divorce her quietly because he thinks that she has committed adultery. She has conceived even though she's never had intercourse with anyone. But as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, he is in the lineage of the king of King David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the first name we see that this child is given or is to be given is the name Jesus. And then Matthew explains or the angel explains why. For he will save his people from their sins. Now what, what's the connection between the name Jesus and the statement for he will save his people from their sins? Well, the name Jesus actually means Yahweh saves. It is the Lord saves. So this child is meant to be the Lord who saves. And in this clause, for he will save his people from their sins, there are several truths here that we need to see this morning. The first is this. Here in this simple statement, for he will save his people from their sins, we see the certainty of his saving mission, the certainty of his saving mission, we, of his saving mission. We see this in the simple words, he will save. This Jesus to be born will accomplish the mission that he's been given. He will not succumb to failure. There's 100% certainty that he will accomplish his saving mission. This isn't a maybe or a possibility. He will do his father's will. He will be resolute. He will be resolved. He will be unwavering in seeing his mission completed. And you see this as Jesus grows up and becomes a man and begins his ministry. In the temptation narrative between Satan and Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus overcomes the temptations that come at him from Satan. You also see his resolve in his mission 
in dealing with the opposition of the religious leaders. Not only this, in his resolve to turn his face toward Jerusalem, the very place by which he would face a criminal's death, none other than crucifixion. He turned his face to Jerusalem knowing that that would be the place where he would be murdered and killed before all. Nothing will stand in his way. No human opposition, no human will will prevent him from doing what he came to do. This Jesus will accomplish his saving work. He's the agent of Almighty God to accomplish his redemption. We know in the scriptures that God's will cannot be thwarted by anyone. We're reminded of this in Isaiah 46, 8 8 to 11. God is speaking to his people and he says this. This is what makes God God and we not God. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then in verse 10, he begins to explain why. What makes him God? What makes him distinct from all other beings in the world? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. What makes me God is that I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Now you might think that that means that God simply can see everything that's going to happen. It is that, but it's more than that. Because based upon what he says next, he says this. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So my declaring the end from the beginning is me saying, I will declare all my purposes. My counsel shall stand. This is what makes God, God. His counsel cannot be broken. His purposes cannot be shaken. And here in this passage, we're told that this Jesus, this child to be born, will save his people. His saving his people is more certain than the rising of the sun tomorrow. This is why the Apostle Paul can write to fellow believers in Philippi that he has absolute confidence that the saving work that God began in them, he will bring to completion. Jesus will accomplish his saving mission. So we see the certainty of his saving mission But we also see in this simple sentence the object of his saving mission. He will save his people. His people. Now the immediate context, we know that this is referring to Israel. Jesus was Jewish and he came to save his people, Israel. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament demonstrate that that statement, his people, has a further and deeper meaning. His people is not just the people of Israel, but they are a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's not based upon ethnicity, but faith. 
It's not just the Jews that he's come to save, but also the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 2, there is this individual named Simeon, and he gets to hold the baby Jesus, and he says that this child will be the glory of Israel, but also a light to the Gentiles. And this is why in Revelation chapter 5, 9, John has this vision, and we're told that the Lamb, Jesus, has ransomed, he has purchased people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So his people will cut through ethnic lines. The people he will save won't be just Jewish people. They won't just be white European people. This room alone is a testimony of this. You know, if you think about Christianity in comparison to other world religions, you discover that Christianity alone, in a sense, rises above ethnicity. What I mean by that is this. The majority of religions in the world are so closely linked to ethnicity. If you're Hindu, for example, for the most part, you come from a certain place and a certain ethnicity. And to reject your Hinduism, in a sense, would be to reject some of what it means to be who you are in regards to your ethnicity. The same would be true of Buddhism and Islam and Judaism. But Christianity transcends ethnicity. This is why currently there are far more Christians in China than in all of North America and Europe combined. There are far more Christians in Africa than in Europe and North America combined. Many, many will make ignorant statements here in North America like Christianity is the white man's religion. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. No doubt there was a time when the majority of Christians came from white European countries. But today, Christianity is declining in most white European countries while it's rapidly growing in places like China and Africa and even the Middle East. Christianity is so wonderfully diverse, and I think that there's no human explanation for this other than the God of Christianity, who is God over the nations, and he has purposed to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Think about it. Chinese, Kenyans, Nigerians, Jamaicans, Indians, Mexicans, Canadians, Filipinos, Brazilians, Russians, Koreans, and many more ethnicities all gather to give their devotion and their worship to a Jewish man who they believe is the savior of the world. It's either the greatest lie ever told or it's the miraculous saving work of God accomplished through this Jewish child who became a carpenter the one who would save his people from their sins. 
But the question needs to be asked, what is the marker to determine who his people are? Is it possible for one who was once not a part of his people to become a part of his people? Well, the scriptures tell us that his people are not determined based upon one's ethnicity, but rather faith. In John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, we're told this about Jesus. He came to his own. That is, he came to his own people, the the people of Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the the answer to who his people are is they are a people, no matter what their background is, no matter what job they have, no matter what their ethnicity is, they are a people who have embraced the Jewish Savior of the world by faith. They have received him. They have believed upon his name. It is those who, like Thomas, fall upon their knees and cry out to Jesus, my Lord And my God, have you done that? Will you do that today? So we've seen the certainty of his saving mission. We've also seen the object of his saving mission. A people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A people of faith. The third thing we see in this simple clause is this. The purpose of his saving mission. He will save his people from their sins. Israel, at the time of Christ's birth, was anticipating for their deliverer, their Messiah, to rescue them from the oppression of Rome. But Jesus had a greater mission than merely rescuing his people from Roman oppression. The Bible does make clear that Christ will one day put an end to all oppression and injustice. But that was not the purpose of Jesus' mission when he first came into the world. He had a far greater rescue mission. Israel didn't need to be rescued from Roman oppression. They needed to be rescued from their sin. There was a far greater oppression than Rome that was at work in their lives. It was the sin residing in their hearts. And it's the same sin that resides in all of our hearts. See, oppression at the hands of other humans is not what humans fundamentally need to be delivered from. Though we need to address those things. But hear this. No one goes to hell because they've been oppressed. People go to hell because they've sinned against their creator. And this is why the reason for Jesus being born was for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. But we need to ask, what is sin? It's become a forgotten word in our modern secular society. 
Yet it's something that every single one of us know experientially. We have firsthand experience with it. The evidence of sin is all around us and within us. We see it at work in our homes as marriages break down, as adultery takes place, as fathers neglect or even abuse their own children, or children rebel and disobey their parents. We see it at work in friendships, betrayal, deception, gossip, jealousy of those you claim to love. We see it in the workplace as co-workers cut corners as, and gossip about their managers and sacrifice someone's reputation in order to get ahead. We see managers abusing their authority and power. We see it at work in politics. Politicians vilifying their opponents, giving false promises to the people just so that they can keep their power. Deception and corruption all throughout politics. No matter what country you go to, there is political corruption. We see it at work in race relations. Whether it's white and black or Israeli and Palestinian or Indian or Pakistanian, Pakistani, or, in, uh, or Chinese, or Japanese. We see it at work in our sexuality. Men exploiting the vulnerable for money. Sexual abuse. Child pornography. If there's one thing the Me Too movement has done, it's revealed to our society what the sexual ethic of our day produces. We see sin at work globally. Nations rising against other nations, whole countries devastated by conflict and war. We see it at work in our own hearts. In Mark 7, 21 to 23, Jesus speaks about how sin is not outside. Our, our environment is not the problem. It's from within that sin comes. As he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The evidence of sin is all around us and within us. But we don't want to acknowledge its reality. We don't want to admit as humans that there's something truly wrong with us. We'll admit that we're not perfect. But the notion that we're sinners is rejected just as the notion that there's a God who will judge us for our sins. We don't want to face reality, but sin is just as sure as the reality of the sun. You can see it at work in every nation, city, office, family, and human heart. You don't have to train a child to sin. It comes naturally. I think I've told this story before, but I have a, a niece who's much older now, but she was three. And she was honestly one of the cutest little girls on the face of the earth. And I actually don't think I was biased. 
But I remember at Christmas one time, she's at the table, and there was, you know, uh, chocolate-covered almonds and those things. I was three years old. And my sister Catherine, the mother, said to Karis, you can only have two. So she takes two. And then as my sister begins to walk away, you can see this three-year-old child look to wait and see until her mom is out of view to grab some more. Who taught her that? No one. It was born in her. You know what my sister did have to teach her? Manners, respect, what it means to interact with someone older than you. In other words, if you don't train your children, discipline your children, shape your children, your children will become monsters. We know that. We have seen kids who are undisciplined. We don't like being around them. That's what humans become. They are sinners. We are sinners. In our refusal to admit that we have an incurable disease called sin, we look to ourselves for deliverance rather than one who actually has the power to deliver us. Every self-help book is a willingness to admit we're not perfect, but a refusal to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Now, everything that I've just conveyed about sin, I've primarily just spoken about sin horizontally, how it affects our relationships to one another. But the Bible tells us that all human sin horizontally is a result primarily of human sin vertically. In other words, the reason we sin against others is ultimately because we have sinned against God. The true vileness of sin is that we have defied and rebelled against our maker. We have forsaken him and his ways. You see, if sin is a corroding disease, what it produces in us is a hatred and an indifference to the God who made us. As Paul states in Romans 3.23, for all That all means all. Every single human being that has been born on the earth, except one, his name is Jesus, all have sinned. All have transgressed, broken God's law. And as Paul says, they have fallen short of the glory of God. That is this. We have not given God the glory that he is due. We have not treasured him. We have not valued him. We have not admired him and worshipped him the way that he ought to be worshipped. We have fallen short of his glory. And the primary reason is because we have loved other things more than him. We are inherently idolaters. We have rebelled against God's ways. We have not honored him as we ought. And we have not given thanks to him as we ought. And because we have defied his commands, the Bible tells us that we are worthy, deserving of condemnation. We're deserving of God abandoning us to our sin. 
We're deserving of his righteous judgment for our sin. You see, though Christmas is a joyous occasion, Christmas is also sobering. Because Christmas reminds us that the human race is in need of a Savior. Christmas reminds us that all that is wrong with this world is a result of our rebellion against our Creator. Christmas tells us that we don't just need a pat on the back, a little push, but we need to be rescued from our own demise. This is the reason for why Jesus came. This is why God sent his son into the world. He sent him on a rescue mission to save us from drowning in our sin. This is precisely what Paul declares in 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 where he says this, The saying is trustworthy. In other words, you need to know that what he's about to say, it's worthy of your trust. And he goes on to say, and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, you ought to accept this as true. What is it that he is saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is about. Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. So we see the purpose of his mission is to save his people from their sins. But what the angel doesn't tell us, nor Joseph in this passage, is the how. How will he save his people from their sins? And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew unfolding for us the way in which Jesus is going to rescue his people from their sins. And if you're not familiar with the story, it might shock you. Jesus' saving mission will end with him being nailed to a wooden cross, naked. He will die a criminal's death. It will appear as though his saving mission had failed. But it was through his death that he would both defeat sin and death. And the scriptures tell us that he bore the sin of the world in his body and he put sin to death in order that we might be delivered and rescued from our sin. His saving act would require his death. You see, Christmas is about a savior who would be born, but his great saving act would be an act of degradation and humility. He would pay the penalty for our sin, and through the penalty being paid, everyone who embraces him as the Savior would be, will be, saved from, its, from sin and its eternal penalty. This is the purpose for Jesus' saving mission, to rescue us from our sins. But you must... Embrace him as the Savior. You must give up your own self-righteousness, your own self-help. You must 
throw away the self-help agenda and look and take hold of the only one that has the power to save you. The only way to get out of a 30-foot pit is no self-help book. You need someone to come down to the pit and rescue you from it. That is what Christ has done. He has come down from the throne room of heaven. He has entered into our humanity. He has shared in our calamity, in our brokenness. He has tasted death. He went down into the depths of Sheol, the Bible tells us, so that he then would bring out with him all those who embrace him by faith. This is who is conceived in Mary's womb. His name is Jesus, and he will rescue his people from their sins. So we've seen the certainty of his mission, the object of his mission, the purpose of his mission. But in this passage, we also see that Jesus has a second name. Gabriel has spoken to Joseph about Jesus, but then Matthew interprets and explains what this all means in verse 22 to 23. Look at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew understands this baby boy, Jesus, to be the fulfillment of a prophecy made in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which this verse is taken from. And as we see here in this passage, this son to be born to Mary has another name. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So on the one hand, his name is Jesus, for he will be the savior of his people. He is the Lord who saves And on the other hand, his name or the title is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now there are several implications here about this name and this simple statement, God with us. And we've already looked at this, so I'm just going to touch upon it. But the first is this. Jesus is God clothed in humanity. This baby to be born is divine. He has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. This baby to be born is God with us. He is God in human flesh. In this child, we have the union between humanity and divinity. Jesus is the demonstration of what God's ultimate purpose is, which is to see humanity united to God in perfect harmony. So this Jesus is God clothed in humanity. Not only we see here in these words, God with us, that he's a present God. He's a present God. In other words, God is not somewhere out there disengaged with the world that he created. Jesus being born amongst us is God's declaration to the world that he's present Theologically speaking, we could say that even before Jesus came into the world, God has always been present. Acts 17, 28, Paul is 
debating with the Epicurean philosophers, and he says this about God, for in him, that is in God, we as humans live and move and have our being. We are in God. We are contingent upon God. He sustains us. Or Psalm 139, verses 7 to 8, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. See, I I think we tend to, as Christians, think that God is out there And every so often, he breaks into the creation. But that's not the biblical picture. The universe and creation isn't self-sustaining. You and I are not self-sustaining. God is always actively working in our world, and he is always present in our world. God does not break into our world. He is present in our world at all times. Our lives, the creation, the universe, are contingent upon his sustaining power for existence. So in one sense, we can say that God is always present. But here with the birth of Jesus, God is present in a unique way. In the Old Testament, we know that God's presence was everywhere and in every nation. Yet in a unique way, God manifested his presence in the midst of Israel in a way that he didn't with the other nations. And the manifestation of his presence was primarily relational in nature. And so Jesus, being God with us, who is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple where God chose to dwell, Jesus being God with us is telling us something about the relational nature of God. He's not merely present, but he's also a relational God. Now, this is both terrifying news, but also comforting news, depending on what side of the fence you're on. There's a lot of people who, who will acknowledge that there, there might be some divine being who created the universe, but, but he's indifferent to the squabbles of humanity. He may be some spiritual force, but he's not relational. He's not present in our world. He could care less about the affairs of mankind. And if you desire to do your own thing and live your own way, then the notion of a distant, indifferent force is quite comforting. It will allow you to sleep peacefully at night. But if God is present and is relational, and you want nothing to do with him or his ways, that's far more discomforting. You see, if God is God, and if he's relational, then he cares about your thoughts and your conduct. He sees what no one else sees about you. In fact, he sees things about you that you don't see about yourself. And if he's created you, and if he is God, then you and I will have to give an account to him for how we have lived. There's a reason why atheism is comforting to the willful sinner. Because ultimately, there's no one to answer to. 
C.S. Lewis, who was once an atheist and became a Christian, he, he once called God the transcendental interferer. People want to live for themselves and they don't like to be interfered with. But friend, you cannot escape God's presence nor the relational dynamic of who he is forever. You cannot escape him any more than a man wandering the desert trying to escape the heat of the sun. You either surrender to his loving interference now or you will surrender to his just interference later. So on the one hand, God being relational is a terrifying reality if you don't want God. On the other hand, there is no sweeter, more precious truth that God is relational for the person who desires relationship with him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know this. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, the whole goal is communion with God. And Jesus died that that would be a reality. This is the purpose for why God created us. He's a relational God, and he invites us to know and commune with him, not because he needs us, but because it will be our joy. See, I think as Christians and even people who who might in some sense identify with Christianity, but you're not actually a follower of Jesus, I think we can often view God as cold and distant, But the picture the Bible gives of God is more like a passionate lover. And he will do all that is necessary to win his bride, even die for her. Just listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 62. This is God speaking to Israel about the the future day of salvation. And he says this to Israel and really to his people from all time. You shall be a crown of beauty. In the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, hear this, my delight is in her. That's God speaking to us. You shall be called, my delight is in you. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God is like an excited husband. When he sees his bride coming down the aisle, he is rejoicing with delight in his bride. Us. That's the kind of God that is in this book. That's the kind of God who reigns over the universe. He is a God who desires communion with his image bearers. And Jesus coming into the world as God with us is a reminder just how present and relational God is with us, his children. This one to be born has two names. His first is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His second is Emmanuel, for he is God with us.
What kind of God is a God who willingly saves his people from their sins and delights to have communion with those whom he has saved? There's only one word. It's love. He is a God of love. At 1 John 3, one says, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. You know, sometimes we simply need to be reminded that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Christmas is a reminder to us that Jesus is our Savior and that God is with us. Let's pray. Father, stir our hearts in worship to you. Help us to treasure and value Jesus, our Savior, the one who is with us. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't truly know you, doesn't truly love you, Lord, I I plead that by your Spirit, you would save them. You'd open their eyes to see that Jesus is who he claims to be. That he is truly the savior of the world and he is the only one who can save humanity from their sins. Do this, Lord, for your glory, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.